This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. If you've got your Bibles, and I'm sure you do have your Bibles, would you please open them to Matthew chapter 3, and then we'll be jumping into Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. So uh, you'll need to make sure just leave your Bibles open there to uh, just the beginning pages there of the New Testament. Let's just uh, still our hearts a moment. Father, we're so cognizant of the fact that we need you today. We need you every Sunday, but I think even more so today. Lord, you really spoke to my heart this week. And I'm, I, I'm excited about sharing what you've taught me, but I know I can't do it on my own. Lord, would you let there be just that spirit that is conducive to where the Holy Spirit can work. Lord, let your word just come alive to us. As has been prayed many times, Lord, just hide me behind the cross that I wouldn't even really be visible, but I pray, God, that you would be visible, that it would all be about you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that were here last Sunday, you would know, hopefully, remember that this we're in a series, this is our second lesson in a series entitled Rediscovering Jesus. And the motivation for this series is that I have such a longing in my heart, and actually this includes you. I have a longing in my heart that, that you, yeah, you, and me, we would all have a fresh encounter with Jesus Christ. And I don't want this encounter to be just an emotional moment or a little spiritual buzz that we get out of a conference or a church service or a YouTube video. Or, but but I, I, I don't want it to be just a little fling, a temporary fling. But I want us to experience His enduring presence, His continual power. So last week we began this series, we studied where John the Baptist introduced Jesus at the Jordan River by saying, look, here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God, remember who takes away the sin of the world, and, and remember that, that, that word, away, remember what, what, what it means, it literally means who lifts up and carries off, so here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God, who lifts up and carries off the sin of the world, and of course, that's what he did on the cross. Well, as we pick up our lesson today, as Jesus comes walking towards John, we see that Jesus wants John to baptize him. Now, now John is very hesitant because he's been telling his audience how great Jesus is and how not great he is. Let's just read it. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying... I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So, so Jesus, you're the great one. You're the one that we've been waiting for. I need to be baptized by you. Verse 15, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, it's okay, John. This is what I want. This is proper. And then and only then, John consented. Verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And by the way, if you've ever wondered why 
the majority of the evangelical church world baptizes by immersion, in other words, by dunking people under the water, it's traced back to this moment. Now, I I will say that baptism is symbolic. Baptism does not wash sins away. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so it is symbolic. And so I do understand that on occasion, there may be some instances when pouring makes sense or sprinkling makes sense. In fact, not this time, whenever I took the team to Israel, but the the, the previous time, there was somebody that had just had surgery. And so they couldn't get in the water. And so we actually baptized by pouring. And, And I believe that was acceptable But I guess I'm old school enough to where I prefer to follow Christ's example and see people baptized by going completely under the water. Well, as soon as Jesus comes out of the water, verse 16 says, At that moment, heaven was opened. And listen, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And and try to picture that moment. It had to be a huge moment. You've got the Spirit of God in the form of a dove landing on Jesus, you got a voice from heaven saying, this is my boy. I love him. He's pleased me. That had to have been a pretty cool moment. Okay. So what happens now? Well, if you hadn't read the account, here's what you would expect. Jesus has been introduced as the lamb who will take away the sin of the world. He's been baptized. There's been the dove and the voice. And and you would think that at that moment, Jesus would take the mic and say, Brother John, thank you so much for the introduction and the kind words. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear for John the Baptist. He's sacrificed out here in the middle of the desert. He's done such an amazing job of preparing us for this moment. In fact, I, I think it'd be very appropriate for us to just take up a love offering for him. Ushers, would you please come forward? I mean, that's kind of what you would think if you hadn't read the account, but it didn't go down that way. Rather, there was a very fascinating twist in the plot. Instead of Jesus stepping in front and center and and taking the mic and, and taking over and beginning to amaze people with his miracles, let's find out what happened. In the very first verse of the very next chapter... And by the way, you know that in the original manuscripts, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls and all of the manuscripts that, that, that were fi- uh, found that, that form our Bible, there were no divisions by chapters and verses. You know that, don't you? Uh, everything just kind of ran together. No verses, no chapters. It was hard to read. And so when, when, when those people came along who compiled the manuscripts into book form and into Bible form like we have it today, that they tried to divide the text into verses so it would be more readable. And then I honestly think they created chapters hoping that preachers would get to the end of the chapter and stop. Uh, dream on. But anyway, Jesus is baptized. He steps out of the water. And here's what the very next verse in Matthew documents. We move to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Not exactly what you would expect. 
He's been introduced as the one that the world had been waiting for. Now he disappears into the desert. And, and what's interesting, when our scripture says that he was led into the desert to be tempted by the devil, the word for devil in the original Greek language is diabolos, which, you know what that means? It's the word that we get our word diabolical from. But the question that surfaced in my mind was this. Why why was this account of Christ's temptation included in the New Testament? I mean, most of the time you don't want to... I don't know about you, but I don't want my temptations documented publicly. It'd be pretty, inter- pretty interesting, pretty embarrassing for me, interesting for you. Um, and so most of the times we, we don't want our temptations made public. So, so why did all of this become public, public knowledge? Well... I think there are probably several reasons. One is that this encounter with the devil is a classic lesson on how to overcome temptation. Scripture gives us other tips in other places as well. But this right here gives us incredible insight on how to withstand an attack from Satan. But secondly, I think this account shows us that after a big event in our lives, and in this instance it was Christ's baptism, After a big spiritual moment in our lives, when we feel an extra sense of closeness to God, get ready, bro. Get ready, girl. An attack from Satan is coming your way. This is kind of Cedar County, but that's where we live. So let me say it this way. When God gives you an extra blessing, Satan will turn around and give you an extra blasting. Amen? Now, there's a third reason that I believe God wanted us to know the details of this temptation. But you're going to have to wait until the very end of our lesson to find that out. Let's see how the temptation went down. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, this account, Matthew's account, almost makes it sound like Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and then he was hungry. I actually think he got hungry on day one. Because Jesus was completely human. And most of us don't know this. And this is completely new information for about 90% of you. But you need to listen here. When you don't eat, you get hungry. I'm serious. That's new information because most of us, we don't skip a meal, much less 40 days worth of meals. But just so you know, when you don't eat, you get hungry. And so during the nearly six weeks that Jesus went without eating, he was getting hungrier and hungrier. And Satan knew that. And so in verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, a couple of verses ago, the Bible used the word devil, which we said was the word diabolos for diabolical. But now the Bible uses a different word. It's the word tempter. And in the original text, it basically means the inquisitor, the tester, the prodder, the poker. You know, today we might say the potster. That's kind of the word that's used here. And so the tempter, the, the, the potster, the agitator said to Jesus, hey, if you're the son of God... Just speak it. Tell these stones to become bread. And the devil said this because he knew that back in the beginning, 
God just spoke the universe into existence. And so the tempter, because he knows scripture better than you do, and he knows scripture better than I do. He said, Jesus, if you spoke the world into existence, surely you could speak some bread into existence. And then maybe he added, and Jesus, you deserve it. And you've been fasting a long time now. I mean, you're past the point where your stomach's growling, it's caving in. And it's not like you would be asking for filet mignon. Not at all. I mean, you're just, you would just be asking for a little bit of bread. Well, Jesus responds by leaning into Scripture. And, and he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he says this in verse 4. It's written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And, and so the Scripture goes back to the nation of Israel traveling through the wilderness and there was nothing to eat. God provided manna from heaven. And, and in those years, God was teaching his people to depend on him every single day. And so Jesus, through this response, indicates that even though he is the son of God, he will still depend on his heavenly father. Well, the devil tries another temptation. Which teaches us that if Satan doesn't succeed one way, he'll try another. Have you found that out? If you make it past one temptation, don't get too comfortable. Because he's coming again. And he did at Christ in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city. Now what was the holy city? Jerusalem. Had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now, as a kid... and Okay, as an adult as well. When I used to read this, I thought they were just magically transported to Jerusalem. You know, boom. They went on some supersonic, maybe Star Trek style travel. They rode a cloud and all of a sudden they were there, just like that. Probably didn't happen that way. More than likely they walked from the wilderness all the way to the holy city of Jerusalem which would have probably been a journey of a day, maybe two days. Well, there in Jerusalem, the devil took him to the highest point of the temple. And, and again, as a kid, and I don't know why I had this in mind, I guess maybe because churches, most churches today have steeples. And so I thought that they probably climbed up on the steeple or some kind of spire and were balancing there. But that's not the case because the temple didn't have a steeple. But they went to the highest point of the temple, which would have probably been the southeast corner. And for those that went to Israel, this makes sense. The reason I say that is because at the southeast corner, you could look down into the Kidron Valley, which would have been several hundred feet down. And what's super interesting to me, and, and, and this just occurred to me this past week, and I was sharing this with my wife last night, and I said, honey... This is just amazing. But what came to me is that the Kidron Valley actually meets up with the Hinnom Valley. Now, th th this, this is super cool, so, so, so hang with me. Now, the Valley of Hinnom, do you know what locals refer to it as? The Valley of Hell. And it gets its name from... You know, back uh, in, in, you know, a couple thousand years ago, they, they had a, uh, a, a burn pit there and it was burning all the time. 
And they also, you know, did some human sacrifices there, but it was just kind of a, a place of a lot of stench and always burning. And, and, and so that was the Valley of Hinnom. And, and they refer to that as the Valley of Hell. And, and it was interesting on our trip just two or three weeks ago, several times we crossed over the Valley of Hinnom on a bridge. And it's a narrow enough that a bridge can span the two sides. And our guide would say this. He'd say, okay, we're about to cross the valley of hell. We need to do a head count before and afterwards to see if any of you drop into hell. But, but anyway, on the southeast corner of the temple, it was quite a drop off. And, and Josephus, the first century historian, said, if you stood on that southeast corner and looked down, you would probably get dizzy. Especially if you were afraid of heights because it was so far down. And so, in verse 6, the devil took him to the holy city. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Throw yourself down where? To the general region that is now referred to as the valley of hell. Well, the devil, as he's trying to talk Jesus into falling for this temptation, he tries to sound spiritual and he quotes Psalm 91. And so in verse 6, it says, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And, and, and he's basically saying, Jesus, talk about making a grand entrance. I mean, you've just been baptized. John has introduced you as the one. And so if you would jump off the high point of the temple, that would be awesome. And it would make for a grand entrance. Because you know God, he's faithful. He'll take care of you. He would send his angels. They would swoop under you, keep you from crash landing in the valley of hell. And Jesus, you would be the talk of the town. I mean, you would have instant fame. Talk about giving you instant credibility. Well, just cutting to the chase here. Do you know what Satan was tempting Jesus to do? He was tempting Jesus to try to manipulate God, which, listen, unfortunately is the version of faith that many people have today. You know, if you'll just believe enough, if you'll just quote a verse here and there, if you'll just say your prayers, if you'll just pay your tithe, if you'll just pop into church once in a while, then God has to bless you. He has to give you what you want because you're in a covenant with him. Well, I'm sorry, God doesn't have to do squat for you. And that doesn't sound very intellectual, I'm sorry, but he doesn't have to do anything. Now, he's a good God, and he loves to give good gifts to his children, but he is under no obligation to give anything to any of us. Any blessings we get is just his mercy and grace. Well, Jesus didn't take the bait. In verse 7, Jesus answered him, It is also written, because remember Satan said, It is written, twisting scripture and jesus said it's written do not put the lord your god to the test and and here jesus was quoting moses when when the nation of israel was on their that they were on their way to the promised land they basically said to moses here we are god's special people this is what god has to do for us and moses said you do not understand you are god's chosen people but you cannot manipulate god into doing what you want and here's the point for us just this may be a little bit disturbing to you. The moment you begin trying to manipulate God, the moment you begin looking for a magic formula, you know, the moment you begin, begin thinking, if I do this and that and have a cross around my neck, 
or a cross in my house or a cross tattooed on my arm, plus I go to church and I pay my tithe, the moment I do those things, then God has to answer my prayers. Sorry for the rude awakening, but when you begin to think that, you're no longer practicing Christianity. You are practicing magic. Your religion has become the pagan superstition that Jesus came to replace. God is not a king in heaven that can be bribed or manipulated. God is not a king in heaven that is waiting for you to bring enough gifts and enough offerings and enough prayers and enough good deeds, enough generosity to get his attention. You cannot manipulate God. So Jesus has made it through the first two temptations, but now comes the third one. And the third one, in my opinion, is the main event. The the first two were just kind of a warm-up. But before we get to that temptation, I want to talk about us. And we're going to take the scenic route to get to that temptation. But I want to ask a question of us. Listen, why are influential people or powerful people or wealthy people so inclined to go off the rails morally or ethically or financially. I mean, you would think that the more power a person has or the more wealth a person has or the more influence a person has, they would have less pressure on them. They would have more freedom, which you think would allow them more time to pray, more time to read the Word, more time to be involved in ministry at the church, ministry serving God, ministry serving others, and that they would be more generous with their resources. But it generally doesn't work out that way. And and there are some exceptions, and some of you are those exceptions, but generally the more powerful, the more influential, the more wealthy we become as a whole, we begin to spend more and more time and money on ourselves and and yes we think we're being generous because we look at the dollar amount instead of the percentage but studies show that the more money we make we give less of our resources not just money but we volunteer less of our time to ministry because now we're so quote unquote important you know we have too many irons in the fire we're now just too busy before you say, amen, preacher, brother, them there rich people need to hear that, please know that I'm talking about most of you today. Most of us. Because if you as a household, listen, if you as a household earn $25,000 a year as a household, combined income, you're in the top 10% of wage earners in the entire world. And you're considered wealthy. And I know what you think, because it's what I thought. I thought, you know what, you know, there are a lot of people that have more money than I do. And, you know, we think we're middle class or maybe lower middle class or upper lower class or truth is some of us don't have any class at all. But, but compared to the rest of the world, almost all of us have a high, fairly high level of wealth, influence, and power. And there's nothing wrong with having wealth, influence, and power, unless, unless we develop the attitude that, okay, I earned it. This is mine. I deserve to pamper myself because I didn't inherit my money. I've worked hard all of my life for everything I have. And so I deserve to spend it on myself. 
I deserve to give orders. I deserve to have people wait on me. And of course, that's where Christ, I think, would come in and say, wait a minute, did I just, did I hear you right? Did I just hear you say that you deserve it? And you earned it? And it's all yours? I, I think he would remind us that wealth, influence, and power, any of that that we're fortunate, fortunate enough to have in this life, they are all gifts from God. And he would remind us that power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful. He would remind us that wealth is not primarily for the benefit of the wealthy. He would remind us that influence is not primarily for the benefit of the one with the influence. Rather, these come from God. They belong to God. And here on earth, they're like a test. And how well you do is judged not on how much you can accumulate now, not on how much you can bully and control someone else, but rather by how you leverage your power, your influence, your wealth to make a difference in the world. And so this third temptation has everything to do with power and influence and wealth. We're finally at the temptation. Verse 8. Again. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. Now, would you allow me just to give you my opinion? This is not scripture. This is Trussell. So take it or leave it, probably leave it. But at least listen to me. Here's what I think might have happened. The devil and Jesus walked. They didn't fly. They didn't float on a cloud. But they walked to a high mountain. I happen to think it was a mountain there in Israel. Um, I, I kind of wonder if they went up there at night. Uh, again, this is just Trussell. Um, and if they did go up there at night, I, I, I wonder if Satan would have said, you know, Jesus, t- take a look up there. And, and they saw just the beautiful moon and you know, all the, the, the stars and the Milky, Milky Way, the, the galaxies. And, and, of course, the higher you get up in elevation, those of you that have gone to Colorado with us on, the, on our climbs, the higher you get up in elevation, the more clarity you have, the more stars you can see with the naked eye. And it's just unspeakably beautiful. And they were looking up there. And maybe Satan says, and Jesus, now look over there and, And I wonder if they didn't look at the Sea of Galilee and there was the moon reflecting off of the sea. And maybe they said, you know, look over there, just kind of in the distance, way over there, there's the Dead Sea and see the reflection there. And, and you know, I don't know the amount of temptation we went there. And we don't know if this is where Jesus was, but if so, that mount is just kind of behind the city of Jericho. And now, obviously, they didn't have electricity back then, but they did have fire. And so I wonder if the devil didn't, didn't say, look down there to Jericho. And in fact, look at all of those communities there. They would have had their fires going to cook with and, and fires to shine as their light in the torches. And, and again, just unspeakably beautiful. And it's almost as if the tempter, the potster, the inquisitor, the poker, the prodder, 
It's almost as if he said, Jesus, just feast your eyes on all of that. Isn't that awesome? Spectacular. Isn't this world such a beautiful, beautiful place? But then maybe Satan says, Jesus, I have a deal for you. I've got a deal you can't refuse. And in verse 9, he says, All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Now, the Gospel of Luke brings in a couple of other details. Let me read the same scenario here out of Luke, Luke chapter 4, verse 6. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. For it's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. He was saying, Jesus, I know why you're here. You've come to establish your kingdom and and I'll give you a head start. And all you have to do is recognize who I am and worship me. And then I will give you all the authority of this beautiful universe. You know, the sky, the stars, everything here on earth. I will give that authority over to you, Jesus. Well, first of all, it didn't belong to Satan. Who created the world? God. It wasn't Satan's. Secondly, Jesus had not come to barter for an earthly kingdom. Jesus had come to establish a kingdom in the hearts of men and women. Well, Jesus, after being tempted to have wealth and power and influence and authority, he stood up to Satan in verse 10. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And, and uh, you know, I take it there must have been a little bit of extra anger because, you know, before he would say it is written and Satan would come back again. But, but this time I think Jesus was ticked and, and he said, get away from me. Get away. Because listen in verse 12 says, then the devil left him. And, and watch this. This is beautiful. And the angels came and attended him. And, and the Gospel of Luke actually says that the devil left him until an opportune time. You know what that's meaning? In other words, he was saying, Jesus, this is round one. We're not finished. You stayed strong this time. Okay, you won round one. I will be back. And then, and then, get ready. You've been dozing, thinking about something else. Luke gives this priceless nugget that many times we miss. In fact, this is the third reason. Remember I said earlier on, I would give you a third reason why I believe God documented Christ's temptation. This is a golden nugget. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. He's weak. He's vulnerable. He's been under severe temptation from Satan. And these temptations are not crazy things like a temptation to go rob a bank. Or a temptation to go hunting on Sunday during deer season things that would have had no pull on Jesus. These are temptations that really pull at Jesus. Hunger. He's been fasting 40 days. He's hungry. But Jesus keeps saying, no, it is written. I won't give in to fleshly desires even if I am hungry. Oh, I won't presume on the goodness of of my father even if it would make for a grand entrance to jump off of the temple into the valley of hell and see the angels come and save me. And I won't worship anyone except for my Father in heaven, even if I would be rewarded with authority and splendor. So 
What is that little nugget that I want you to miss? Here it is. After successfully saying no to Satan, Luke 4, 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Question. Do you want to rediscover Jesus in your life? Question. Do you want to know Him in the power of the resurrection? Question. Do you want to have a fresh encounter with Him? You do? Say a complete no to Satan and a complete yes to Jesus. The truth is that I believe many of us live our lives void of the power of the Spirit simply because we're giving in to Satan in certain areas of our lives. We're not saying a complete no. And just on the lighter side before we wrap up, do you know what I find interesting? After 40 days of temptation, perhaps to spite the devil instead of turning stones into bread, he went to a wedding and he turned water into wine. Just kind of like, okay. And do you know why Jesus turned water into wine? Because his mama asked him to do it. And I think that's the point of the entire story is say yes to your mama and no to the devil. No, that's not really it. Here's the real point. Jesus, through these temptations, was offered at some level what we all want. We're all tempted with fleshly desires. Whether it's food, sex, hampering ourselves we are all tempted with fleshly desires and then we all have a leaning towards wanting to be noticed it's just natural we like to hear our name that's why when you go to the bank they're supposed to call you by your name you say well I like to be behind the scenes Okay, why do you get upset when somebody doesn't speak to you then? We want to be noticed. And then we all have a desire to obtain some level of power and wealth and authority. And there's nothing wrong with any of that as long as it's all consecrated to God. But Jesus refused these temptations because he did not come to be served. He had come to serve. He had not come to establish an earthly kingdom. He had come to establish a heavenly kingdom. He had not come to be over us. He had come to get under us to take the burden of mankind. He had not come asking for his subjects to lay down their lives for the king. Rather, he would lay down his life for us. He had not come to take over. He had come to take away, to lift up, and carry off the sins of the world. So this morning, as we continue our journey to rediscover Jesus, the question is not, are you being tempted? Of course you are. As long as you're sucking air, you're being tempted. The real question this morning is, are you saying no to Satan and yes to God? 
And the way that you answer that will probably determine, do you have the power of the Spirit in your life? So I have a longing in my life. I have a longing for you that we would be victorious over Satan. And I know that Satan confuses us. You know, he, he begins to make us think, okay, a thought comes into my mind, there's a temptation, I've sinned. Remember, temptation is not sin. It's yielding to temptation. That's the sin. And so I think that sometimes Satan keeps us feeling so guilty because we have this, these temptations that come into our mind and we think, oh, I'm just sinning all day long. You know, just these temptations. Remember, a temptation is not a sin. Otherwise, Jesus would have sinned. It's not resisting. It's falling for those temptations that is sin. And so don't let Satan confuse you, you know, this week as you try to sort through that. But I want to just pray before we leave that God would give us the power to be able to say no. No. It is written. And you can always go to the Word because the Word, it's powerful. We can go to the Word and say, Satan, it is written. It is written. And this is the only time you can ever say this, but you can say, Satan, you go to hell. You have no business here. And I'm resisting you in the name of Jesus. And so this week, may God help us to have the courage, the strength, the power, the power to say no to Satan and yes to Jesus. Can I pray for you before we leave? Lord, I know, I know we're all tempted. Lord, I could write a book about all the temptations that have come to me. Everybody could add a chapter to that. And Lord, thank you that we don't have to fall for every temptation that comes our way. Lord, there may be an occasional stumble. It seems like that happens. But Lord, thank you that you give us the power to be able to resist Satan. Lord, we're on this journey to rediscover Jesus in our lives. And, and I pray that you would help us with this matter of temptation, that we wouldn't fall and Lord, temptations of the flesh and temptations of just to be noticed, temptations for wealth, authority, power that's not consecrated to you. But I pray that this week you would help us to just take the temptations and take them to the cross and resist in the name of Jesus. And so, God, I ask that you would help me, first of all, as pastor of this church. Lord, I pray for the board members. Lord, I pray for our Sunday school teachers. I pray for our kids workers, our life group leaders. I pray for all of our volunteers. Lord, I pray for those that just pop in on a Sunday morning. And Lord, I pray that all of us, we would understand what it is to have life and have it more abundantly that we could say no to Satan. God, I know that you want a pure people. And God, 
I know in our own strength, we can't do it. But through the written word and through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can. And help us to do it this week. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.